You're listening to King's Court's Message of the Week from King's Court Church in Kingston, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website, www.kingscourtfmc.com. This morning we begin a new sermon series called Character Lessons. In this series, we're going to explore the lives and stories of biblical characters and the lessons that they hold for us. With Valentine's Day coming up this week, I decided to begin with the story of Jacob and Rachel. And we're going to hear more about Jacob throughout our series because the fascinating details of his life are spread throughout the book of Genesis. Jacob, as you may recall, is the son of Isaac, the younger twin brother of Esau. He came into this world grabbing on to his brother's heel, trying to get ahead. He deceived his father into granting him the blessing due to the eldest son. And this caused Esau to hate his little brother Jacob. In fact, he was so angry that he was planning to kill him. And so Jacob, fearing for his life, fled as his mother had directed him to and left to stay with his uncle Laban. While on the run, God spoke to Jacob through a dream, a dream that we commonly refer to as Jacob's ladder. In this dream, God promises him that he would have many descendants spread out to all four corners of the earth and they would all be blessed by his offspring. God assures Jacob, saying, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. With this promise to strengthen him, Jacob built a memorial using the stone he had laid his head on to sleep to mark this as a place for worshiping God. He then turned on his way to find his mother's brother's place so he could hide out there safely until Esau's fury subsided. And that is where we pick up the story this morning. With Jacob finally arriving in the land of the east, the district of Mesopotamia and the whole country beyond the Euphrates is typically referred to as the land of the east. Tired, dirty, and sweaty, More than ready for a rest, he comes to a well with a number of flocks of sheep and shepherds just standing around. They were waiting for the remainder of the sheep and shepherds to arrive because it was custom to not remove the large boulder covering the well until everyone was gathered together. And so Jacob struck up a conversation with the shepherds. He asked them where they were from. And to his delight, they answered Haran. This was music to Jacob's ears, for Haran was the hometown of his uncle Laban. Perhaps some of these shepherds might even know him. So Jacob asked, Do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor? They did indeed. And even better, here comes his daughter Rachel with his flock. From a distance, Jacob sees her, and he likes what he sees. In chapter 29, verse 17, it says, Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. She was stunning, and Jacob was captivated. In fact, you could say that it was love at first sight. Jacob suggests that the shepherds not waste any more time, don't waste any more daylight, and instead water their sheep and get back out to the pasture. I'm not quite sure that Jacob is concerned with the sheep as much as he does not want any competition for Rachel's attention. I'm guessing that he's just trying to orchestrate things so he can be alone with her. Unfortunately for Jacob, the shepherds have a system. 
They have to wait for everyone to arrive at the well with their flocks, and only then will they together roll away the stone so that all the sheep and the goats can be watered. Well, there was not enough time to convince them otherwise, because Rachel had arrived with her father's flock. And what does Jacob do? What does he do before even introducing himself to Rachel? He goes over and he moves the boulder from the well and waters the flock. That's what you call smooth, gentlemen. Jacob's got game. Chivalry is not dead as long as Jacob has eyes for Rachel. He was not concerned with the accepted procedures. His lady had arrived and her flock needed tending to, and he was just the man to do it. So with brute strength, he alone moved the boulder from the well, a task that typically took multiple men. Jacob may have been showing off just a little bit, what guys sometimes refer to as the gun show. I think this might be just that biblical example. All well and good. But then Jacob goes over and kisses Rachel and begins to cry. He begins to cry. Now, this kiss is a cultural form of greeting rather than an indecent act that would get him slapped by most women. But still, he began to cry. It may seem odd that Jacob goes from macho man to crybaby, but think of it. After what could have only been a long, tiresome journey, full of anxiety and fear, he has finally made it to safety. He is home among his relatives. And more than this, he is greeted by a woman of such stunning beauty that he is overwhelmed with emotion. Have you ever had one of those moments when the weight of the world has been on you and the stress has been so heavy you thought for sure that you would crumble beneath it? And then finally, in an instant, the load is taken from you and you simply burst into tears. I know this feeling. I can recall specifically a time when a weight so heavy was lifted from me in an instant that after I hung up the phone, I literally broke into tears from joy and relief. At some point, either before or after the kiss and tears, Jacob tells Rachel who he is, son of her father's sister, Rebecca, her cousin. At this point in time in history, it's not against biblical law to marry your cousin. Biblical laws around marrying relatives are established later on in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So Rachel runs home, probably leaving the flock entrusted to strong man Jacob, because after all, someone needs to roll the stone back into place. She tells her father the good news that his nephew is here. And so Laban runs out to meet Jacob. He hugs and kisses him and brings him into his home. He's pleased to welcome the son of his sister, but probably also delighted to have the help of a young, strong man. And Jacob did indeed work for his uncle Laban. But his uncle did not want to take advantage of him. And so he said, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Well, Jacob knew exactly what he wanted from his uncle, and he wanted it from the first moment he set eyes on it. And now, a month later, his desire had only grown stronger. He wanted Rachel. Jacob was deeply in love with Rachel, but he knew he had nothing to offer his uncle for her hand in marriage, no dowry, no money, 
So with his passion propelling him, he offers to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for his daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, I don't know how much time Jacob and Rachel spent together over those 30 days, but his offer seems both overly grandiose and premature. I can't help but wonder if it was more infatuation or lust that Jacob was experiencing than love. Either way, 30 days doesn't seem like a lot of time to get to know someone before deciding to spend the rest of your life together, before offering to work for seven years hard labor with no pay. But Jacob was in love, and nothing else mattered. In fact, we read, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Wow. Now those words drip sweet like honey. Jacob could write Valentine's Day cards for Hallmark. Oh, your love. Your love makes seven years of hard labor seem but only a day. Jacob's love at first sight, however, turned into love under great stress. When the seven years were up and the time came to marry Rachel, Laban threw a huge wedding feast, and people danced and ate and laughed and celebrated. Then, as was the custom, that night Jacob's new bride was brought into his room that they might consummate their marriage. In the darkness, his wife in flowing garments and veiled face gives herself to her husband. Only the woman was not Rachel. As the rising sun broke through the darkness, the eyes gave it away. It was not the deep, dark, beautiful, big eyes of Rachel looking back at Jacob. No, it was Leah, her older sister, the one the Bible said had no sparkle in her eyes. Jacob freaked out, understandably. He confronts Laban, what have you done to me? I have worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? An interesting reversal of fortunes here. Because it was Jacob, if you recall, that deceived his big brother out of his birthright and blessing. And now it is Jacob himself who has been deceived. Laban's response, it's how we do it here. Our custom is that we do not marry off our younger daughters before our eldest is wed. Now, this answer clearly would not have appeased Jacob. He loved Rachel, not Leah, and he was not any more concerned with the customs of marriage than the customs of rolling away this wellstone. Laban offers him a compromise. Wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too, if you promise to work another seven years for me for free. Jacob must have been in love. Because you know how they say love makes you do crazy things? Well, I think it was based on this example. Jacob agrees to work seven more years for free for his uncle in order to marry Rachel at the end of his honeymoon to Leah. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The Bible is better than any soap opera you will ever find on TV. A week later, Jacob and Rachel were wed, and his heart was complete. Though I can only imagine how heartbroken Leah was. While Jacob did remain married to her, 
because it says he loved Rachel much more than Leah. This marriage of deceit left no one satisfied, no one happy. Jacob, however, honored his promise to Laban and worked for him for another seven years. Jacob's love for Rachel was enduring. It endured seven years of labor. It endured deceit and treachery, and then another seven years of hard work and no pay. Yet the depths of Jacob's love for Rachel were going to be tested even further as the character flaws, which were hidden by her beauty and distance, become uncloaked with the transparency of marriage. This would make for a great episode of Sister Wives. Leah, Jacob's first wife, who he was tricked into marrying and did not love, bore him four children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel, however, was not able to get pregnant. Chapter 29, verse 31, we read, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. Rachel's beautiful complexion turned an ugly shade of envious green. She welled up with jealousy toward her sister. She lashes out at Jacob, Give me children or I will die. Rachel, I suspect, was used to having her own way, her beauty getting her what she wanted, and now she is essentially throwing a temper tantrum. If I can't have my own way, I would rather be dead. Rachel had incredible physical beauty. She had all her material needs provided for. And more than this, she had the adoring devotion of a loving husband. But it wasn't enough. Jacob's love wasn't enough. Rachel was discontented, selfish, jealous, and demanding. And clearly Jacob was not the problem in the baby-making department. He had fathered already four children with Leah. And yet Rachel lashes out at the man who worked for her father for free for 14 years so he could spend the rest of his life loving her. But it wasn't enough for her. And it broke him. And he lashed out. Chapter 30, verse 2 says, Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? I can't imagine the pain of not being able to conceive a child. And I will never intend or want to minimize that. But it's not the pain and sorrow that Rachel would understandably experience that is unacceptable here. It is her jealousy, her envy, and how she responds to her situation. Her discontentment leads her to demand of Jacob, take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her I can have a family too. In biblical times, this was acceptable as part of their culture, to have your servant maid, if you were unable to conceive a child, sleep with your husband, and that child would become your own. And so Jacob did as his wife requested, and Bilhah had a son, who Rachel named Dan. Then Bilhah had another son, who Rachel named Naphtali, because she said, I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning. She named her second child Naphtali, which means I have struggled hard with my sister and I am winning. Was it even that Rachel wanted children or that she simply wanted what her sister had? 
Or was she in a competition with her sister for Jacob's affections, which she was too blind to see were already hers? This jealous discontent continued as a pattern for Rachel. One day, Reuben, Leah's son, is out in the field working when he finds some mandrakes and brings them to his mother. Rachel sees them, and she wants them. That seems to be Rachel's problem. She always seems to want what somebody else has. She begs Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah angrily replied, wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now you will steal my son's mandrakes too? And you know how Rachel replied? By bartering her husband off in trade. I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. Well, of course, Leah, desperate for the love of her husband, agrees. And you know what happens? Jacob sleeps with Leah, and she gets pregnant again. Rachel got her mandrakes. Leah got a baby, her fifth son. And then she had another son after that, and then a daughter, six sons and a daughter. Even when Rachel gets what she wants, she's not happy. Rachel did eventually become pregnant. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Joseph. Do you know why she named him Joseph? Because Joseph means, may he add. For she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. Rachel was never happy, never content. Though she had the love of her husband and now a child, she still wanted more. When Jacob realizes that it's time to return to his home country, he takes his wife Leah and Rachel with him. Rachel, however, we learn in chapter 31, verse 19, does not leave without first stealing her father's household idols. And here's the thing. Whoever held possession of those household idols were considered the heir of the family. This would mean that Jacob, Laban's son-in-law, and not his own sons, would gain the largest portion of the family inheritance. And Rachel did this without Jacob's knowledge. So when Laban chased them down looking for them, he had no idea, nor did he realize it, when Rachel lied to her father, claiming to be menstruating to keep him from asking her to get off the camel and finding those household idols hidden in the camel saddle she was sitting upon. And yet through it all, Jacob's love endured. It never waned or gave up on Rachel, despite her demands and her discontent, her lies and her manipulation. He loved her. And this is evidenced by the fact that when they were heading back to meet Esau, Jacob positioned his beloved wife Rachel at the end of the caravan. The end of the caravan was the place of most protection and safety. It was the prized position. But do you know who was ahead of Rachel? Leah and her children. And in front of Leah, the servant wives and their children. But Rachel, beloved Rachel, was in the back, safe and sound. Re Jacob's love was not perfect. He was not a perfect husband, but he loved Rachel well. He loved her completely. His love never faded. It endured all things. Jacob's love for Rachel is a human example of 1 Corinthians 13 wedding verse lived out. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Jacob loved Rachel when she was most beautiful and when the things she said and did made her terribly unattractive. He loved her at her best and at her worst. Jacob loved her to the end. And Rachel's end came when she finally got what she wanted. Remember her demand, give me children or else I die. Not give me a child, but give me children or else I die. In chapter 35, we learn that she did become pregnant again and gave birth to another son. But in giving birth to that son, she died. And she used her last breath to name him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob, on the other hand, renamed his son Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. The right hand was a hand of blessing, the hand of strength. This child was to be to Jacob like his wife Rachel, very dear to him, set on his right hand for a blessing, the support of his age like the staff in his right hand. The son of her who was his right hand, dear and assisting him, even in death. Jacob honors his wife. And then he further honored his wife by setting up a stone monument over Rachel's grave, which can still be seen there to this day. And yet author Richard L. Strauss referred to this lasting monument as a monument to the disaster of discontentment. A monument to the disaster of discontentment. But Joseph did not just love Rachel to the end of her life. He loved her till the end of his own. In Genesis chapter 48, we find Joseph, Jacob's son, and his two sons gathered around his deathbed, about to receive a blessing from him. Yet even in those moments, at about the age of 147, Jacob is still thinking of Rachel. He says, Long ago, as I was returning from Pradan Aram, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. We were still on the way, some distance from Bethlehem, and so with great sorrow I buried her there beside the road to Bethlehem. That is enduring love. And yet discontentment kept Rachel from experiencing the depths and heights and breadths of Jacob's love for her. Reading the love story of Jacob and Rachel with all of its struggles and Jacob's steadfastness reminded me of an even greater love story, indeed the most beautiful love story, A story that speaks to us all, whether we are single, just married, divorced, struggling in our marriage, or have experienced wedded bliss for the last 50 years. It is a story of God's love for us. Jacob seems to me to be a reflection, albeit imperfect, of God and his love for us. God whose love is perfect. We are like Rachel, abundantly blessed and yet often discontent, Too often thinking that God is keeping something from us, jealous perhaps of what those in the world have, willing to trade in the endless extravagant love of God for riches or power, popularity or pleasure, ready to barter our time with God for some mandrakes or proverbial golden apples. 
And yet, despite our lack of faithfulness towards God, he remains forever faithful to us. Despite our sometimes lukewarm love for God, his love for us burns bright even when we are at our ugliest. God loves us. Even when we blame him, he loves us. Even when we ignore him, he pursues us. For Christ is the only one who perfectly satisfies that 1 Corinthians 13 passage. When it comes to his love for us, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The love of Jesus never fails. Jesus loves us when we are at our most beautiful and when the things we say and do make us terribly unattractive. He loves us at our best and at our worst. Jesus loves us to the end. His love endures forever. Our choice is to receive that love or deny that love. True contentment is found only through Christ our Lord, our Savior, our friend. There is a hole in our hearts that only Christ can fill. And until we allow him in, we will never be truly satisfied. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, God. We will only be satisfied to the degree that we let Christ in. Like Rachel, we can keep secrets and lies, walling off compartments of our hearts, afraid of being found out, afraid of letting God in. And yet every day God reaches out to us. He reaches out to love us in a myriad of ways. Will you reject it or will you let him love you and find contentment in his love alone? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your enduring love. We thank you for your perfect love. We thank you that you love us when we're at our best and when we're at our worst. We thank you that you love us despite ourselves. And thank you that you love us too much to leave us the way we are. Oh Lord, help us to receive your love, to soak in your love, to experience your love in tangible ways, Lord, that it would flood us and fill us and pour out from us into every person we come into contact with, Lord God. Oh, Lord, this Valentine's Day, help us not to love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And help us not just to love the lovable, but to love all people as you have loved us unconditionally. Lord, we thank you for your love. May your love strengthen us. May it encourage us. May it give us hope. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.